You are now listening to Close on Sunday, a UCYM podcast. Hello, you are listening to the Close on Sunday podcast. We are joined today with Joshua Smiza de Leon. Uh, you might know his voice from the Basel podcast, um, host, creator of that podcast. Um, also works for Comcast, has also been involved in campus ministry at DePaul University. And we're just going to have a nice conversation about faith, um, youth group, ministry, and Catholicism. So, Joshua, welcome to the podcast. Really happy to have you. Thanks, Joel. Happy to be here today. I was telling you off air, but since we're hitting record, I don't I don't know who's going to see this, but I finally had an excuse to bust out my Peace Be With You pullover hoodie. So I was really excited to prepare for this interview. Uh, that's probably the extent of the amount of I, pre I prepared, probably just my outfit, which was just this hoodie. So let's see how this conversation goes. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, I'm here for it. I, I love the hoodie. It's a great look. Um, Thank you. Yeah, iconic. That's fashion icon over here. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> if it would kind of help to just talk generally, right? So like, how did Catholicism play a role in your life? Uh, man, uh, I think I think Catholicism has been woven into a lot of uh, different aspects of my life. I mean, probably since when I was born, um, a very uh, I grew up in Humble Park, but my father and my mother uh, really wanted me to have a Catholic education, which they felt couldn't be attained in CPS. Uh, so I ended up going to St. John Birchman's, uh, and uh, that was where I went to school from preschool all the way to eighth grade. Uh, then I wanted to become a priest for a little bit. Uh, and then I decided to go to Archbishop Quigley Preparatory Seminary. I wouldn't say I was like 100% wanted to become a priest, but, you know, I was like, it was an option. It was on the table. Went there, uh, then uh, Quigley, Quig, Archbishop Quigley Preparatory Seminary closed my junior year, went to St. Pat's uh, for my last year, and then uh, went to DePaul, uh, which is another Catholic institution. Um, and I got my bachelor's and my master's there. So I got my bachelor's in industrial organizational psychology, and I got my master's in PR and advertising. So from preschool to master's, I was in Catholic school. My father probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Catholicism. My father was born in Southern Spain, got adopted. Um, and it was a, it was a, a Vincentian orphanage that he was adopted from. I ended up wanting to become a Vincentian priest, decided not to uh, become a Vincentian priest. Uh, like, like two years later, he found himself working at DePaul and he had my mom at DePaul University. Uh, so he ended up having a family, ended up becoming a deacon. Um, him and my mom got married at St. Vincent DePaul. I actually met my wife at DePaul University. Uh, and then uh, my wife and I actually also got married at uh, St. Vincent's on DePaul University's campus. I also worked for the Archdiocese of Chicago, was a youth minister and was a young adult minister. Did a lot of stuff. I also worked locally in a church. Um, in addition to doing the Archdiocesan work, which I was in charge of overseeing all the youth ministry and campus ministry from Holy Name Cathedral all the way to the border of Lake and Cook County. Professionally, personally, uh, spiritually, Catholicism has been uh, a pretty firm uh, and consistent presence in my life. That's really, uh, really beautiful and profound. I think like it's really nice to see that it's been something that's followed you your entire life um and has been surrounding you 
Um, can you talk a little bit more about like your early life? I know you even mentioned, so if you want to talk about maybe your dad's experience in the Vicentian, um, you know, you said he was in an orphanage, I believe. Yeah, he was adopted. That's why I have uh, the Smizer, uh, that German last name. Um, so he was adopted. Uh, I don't, I, I wasn't there when my dad was in the Vincentian Seminary, so I don't know exactly what his experience was. I just know I, you know, he had a sense that he wanted a, a family. Um, and to a certain extent, you have a gigantic family when you become a priest. Uh, but I think he wanted like uh, a wife and, and kids. Uh, so he ended up going that route. Uh, and myself as well. I mean, sophomore, junior year, that feeling of the priesthood being on the table kind of just, uh, um, how do I articulate this? That feeling of being a priest uh, was on the table for a bit as a strong option, but then kind of dissolved in my mind when I kind of came to the realization, like during sophomore, junior year, I wanted to have a wife and kids. But uh, I credit youth ministry and my faith for helping me kind of get out of my shell. And I think I was a bit of a loner uh, in elementary school, junior high. For the most part, I got along with everybody, but I was very introverted. Um, when I got into youth ministry, uh, and this is at uh, St. Al's, St. Aloysius uh, Parish in Humboldt Park, like border of Humboldt Park, Wicker Park, um, that's when I really got out of my shell because I started to get more of a leadership position. I became the president of our youth ministry in high school um, and really felt like people had faith in me or in tr putting trust in me. Um, and I could actually see the fruits of the labor I was putting in to making that youth ministry fruitful. Uh, but going back even even uh, further than that, um, with my dad having a good base of theology, being in the seminary and just really feeling firm and being firm in his faith and always trying to learn and delve deeper into it, uh, I had a really good base um, in my life and support system in my life to ask questions of, uh, to push back on, um, to have philosophical, theological discussions with that helped me better articulate what I was seeing in the church, better articulate what I was feeling when I practiced my faith and better equipped to talk about my faith with other people, not just my peers, but people that were older than me as well. I think one, you talked about that like base, um, like the theological foundation that your dad had. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I think like, it's really interesting when you talk about like Catholicism and, and people who were like former Catholics having an element of spiritual abuse uh, and not being able to necessarily have the fluidity in asking questions about faith or being told that you need to just blindly follow stuff. Um, and I think that as kids, you know, it's, it's important to have an element of play when you're learning. Um, so can you, can, you, uh, can you talk a little bit more about how that experience was for you? Yeah, I mean, I was very lucky. My dad uh, always ha has always had an inquisitive spirit. Um, he's always had a desire to, to learn. And I think most importantly, he's never felt like he has to be right in a conversation. Uh, I think every conversation he tries to approach it from like, look what I know, look what I learned. Uh, did you know this? Uh, what do you think about this? Um, so it was less of a turn or burn mindset, or you have to do this, or you have to do that. 
and more of a role of a teacher. Um, but almost like when you kind of like what you experience in college, where it's more of like not just you do have more professors that lecture at you, but you do have classrooms, or at least that I've been a part of, where it's more of a conversation, and that's how you learn. So my dad was always conversational. Uh, I'm always very flexible and, and never felt like, you never felt like he was digging his heels in on something. Um, if I'm making sense there, you know? Uh, so, you know, I think he was always really good at, at helping us kind of come to our own conclusions on things while also helping us steer the ship. Like, you know, when I was, uh, when I was thinking about being a youth minister and a young adult minister and even working for the Archdiocese of Chicago, uh, you know, I think anybody that's in those professions or or has learned about those professions knows that you don't go into them to make a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, when I was thinking about doing that, my dad never pushed me to get into ministry. He never pushed me to work at the Archdiocese of Chicago. Those are decisions I made on my own. Uh, so that's, I think that's a perfect example. You might have some parents that want something for their kids so badly that they'll try to live vicariously through them or push them into a certain thing. And it's just like fitting the square peg into a round hole. It's just, it's just not going to work. Uh, so my dad was very good at letting me come to my own conclusions while also being a presence in a support system. If I did want to, you know, bounce things off of them or express any doubt or look, or if I was looking for some affirmation in my decision, um, you know, he was, he was a, a really good foundation. Um, and I say that knowing that not every dad's like that. I got very lucky with the father I have. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like it. That's a, that's a great opportunity and a great support system to, uh, like I said, like have those conversations and play with it. Not to jump immediately head first into like, tell me the difficulties or stuff like that. But what were some of the challenges that you experienced with your faith growing up? Um, whether that was just questions um, or or aspects of doubt, what were some of the obstacles in your way? Uh, I mean, growing up, I mean, biggest obstacle was why am I looking at a white man uh, as Jesus uh, when it's just not historically accurate? Uh, I'd say that was probably when I was uh, really getting interested in the historical aspects of the the Bible, um, looking at the historical Jesus as opposed to just the one we hear in the gospel. Um, you know, it was one of those just kind of following that inquisitive spirit where I was like, ah, oh, this is kind of not reflective of who this guy probably is. Um, I'm going to go through a long list here for you. So just be buckle up. Uh, that, that's what I'm asking so for. Apologies for my, uh, my ranting. I didn't like that priests couldn't get married. I didn't like that, uh, uh, women couldn't be priests. Uh, I didn't like the ageism in the church. I didn't like the preferential treatment for, uh, people with money in the church, uh, which tend to be. Uh, the older folks, so the older and older folks tended to be the majority in the pews. So that's kind of where the the church leaned, as opposed to talking about um, the next generation. Instead of investing in the next generation, I didn't like how the church had divested from youth ministry and young adult ministry. Um, let's see what else. I don't like the way the church was misusing funds and not closing churches when they were clearly not sustainable um churches that are falling apart um and all people's money was going to was basically keeping the lights on replacing the boiler as opposed to living out you know catholic social teaching um i don't think i don't think the church is honest enough with itself uh, um also uh sexual abuse scandals 
um, how a priest uh, and the institution of the, the organization of the Catholic Church hid, moved priests around, hid them, suppressed um, suppressed evidence, people were making accusations. Um, let's see, what else was I not liking at the time, which I still don't, these things I still don't like. Um, I didn't like how you could have a priest doing a really good job somewhere and they end up getting moved and all that work that they've invested in that community kind of dissipates. Uh, I didn't like how white the leadership was in the church, mm -hmm. especially in the leadership of, you know, whether that be the, the local level, the, you know, archdiocesan level, uh, international level. I don't really, didn't really see a lot of people like me reflected in that. Um, I didn't like how the conservative wing of, of Catholics uh, seemed to have the biggest microphone, whereas people that maybe tried to lean more into actually more progressive values, which really you can make the argument that's just Catholic social teaching, um, those kind of concerns seem to just kind of be put at the wayside. Oh, uh, catechism, catechism classes. I didn't like how a lot of schools wouldn't police how uh, you'd have a cat, you'd have kids in Catholic school from Monday to Friday, but if you had kids that were going to catechism or CCD, as some people know it, on maybe like evening classes or weekend classes, whenever you bring all those kids together, uh, there was almost a sense of like snottiness from the people, the parents that uh, had their kids going in there, uh, you know, Monday through Friday. So it was a little bit of a classism that I didn't appreciate. Um, which I think also then is reflected in, you know, a feeling of being judged when I'd walk into a church as well. Uh, I just feel like some people, if you're not, depending on what church you walk into, can feel like a very cold, judgmental environment. And that's not to say churches are like that, but that can be the vibe they give off uh, for people that are just kind of first stepping foot in there. So there's a lot of churches that just didn't do enough job of just welcoming people. If anything, they otherized people. Um, so I, I was very lucky at St. Al's the time I was there as a youth minister and young adult minister. I had a, a really solid priest named Nick Desmond, um, who, you know, he he would listen to these concerns. He let me experiment a lot more in, in youth ministry as well. So we could actually have real discussions with young people. I mean, young people aren't stupid. They see these things. So, uh, you know, we can talk more about that later, but you know, I was able to explore other faith traditions. I was able to have experts come into our youth ministry and have retreats entirely built around um, different faith traditions, interreligious dialogue, delving deep into deeper Catholicism, its history, and how we live that today. You know, I again, I was very lucky to be in a space where that type of pushback that I was giving and the change I wanted to see in the church was very much supported. Um, anyway, that's a long list. That was a very long list. There's probably other things if I thought about it more, but uh, I I I just been in ministry for so long. I think there I've just seen so many things that unfortunately, yeah, you know, I think the church could run a lot better uh, if it would just stop getting in its own way. Yeah, no, I I appreciate you saying that. And there was a couple different notes, and um. I think. Oh, colonialism too. Sorry, I interrupted you, Joel. <laughs> no, colonialism. <laughs> yep. Sorry, I don't Tell mean I say Tell colonialism, him. but colonialism. We can't forget yeah. about that. That's yeah. part of the biggest one. One of the biggest. No, I was gonna say like, and uh, this was one of the questions I want to actually act uh, actually asked you last, 
but one of the questions I was going to ask was, um, yeah, like the church has such an ingrained history with like, right. And it goes to what you were criticizing, like sexual assault scandals, um, homophobia, um, was it racism? And then not even racism to the extent of like, you know, just perpetuating, like, having people use religion and weaponizing religion uh, as a tool, but also expanding that to colonialism and using the idea of evangelicalism uh, to then go out and convert, which was really just a ploy to steal people's resources and all that other stuff. So I, there's a deep, very, very deep history there. But I was going to ask, like, with all of that in mind, right, and how do you how do you balance that how do you reconcile like this terrible history like basically like if this was anybody if this was any other institution we'd be like abolish it right straight up Mm -hmm. given the history given the context why hasn't the church gotten canceled um (laughs) and so like when trying to balance that with our own personal experiences with faith um our own community uh experiences with faith uh because there was even a lot of churches that were a part of community building and i know you mentioned humble park logan square so how do you how do you balance all of it how do you reconcile with all of that harm that the church has caused uh i mean i don't forgive the church for any of that um and uh, i don't know that i can reconcile that because the church hasn't even asked for that reconciliation the church hasn't really asked for forgiveness for its crimes now we've seen instances of that like we saw with pope francis going to canada and apologizing for the atrocities of the catholic church to the native population you know we see instances like that where are great that are great uh, moments of humility um, but the church hasn't asked for forgiveness for things like the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition. Or, you know, this, those are things that, and I do believe there's people probably doing missionary work that truly believed in what they were doing without understanding the effects of what they were doing. Um, so I, I don't want to say that there weren't like true believers doing that, but um, you know, a lot of this came at the cost of uh people wanted to expand their power and the way um, you do that is unfortunately through colonialism and the way you get power is you're expanding your faith so people may be thinking you know we want to cast as well as possible and you know capture be the fishermen of men um but it should the the mistake there was doing that at the expense of human beings the lives of human beings um under the guise of this larger mission so no i don't reconcile it um if the church wants to have that conversation i will listen but i haven't seen that i also think people have come into relationship with their local church in different ways um i think the church has been canceled for a lot of people but really who i mean really who that's been canceled is really that canceled there's always like a subset of people that are going to be down um for whatever that person is hawking um you know we can look at people like louis ck as an example can even use people like kanye west as an example um how long did it take for kanye west to say one bad thing after another until you know i mean people are still giving him airtime still giving him interviews i mean 
I think there's, there's, you're going to find a subset of people that are going to be down to support an institution or an individual. So I think a lot of that comes down to how people interact with their own faith. You know, you look at a place like St. Sabina on the south side of Chicago, um, you know, they've done some really great work and there's a lot of energy there. Um, I don't think the way people come into Catholicism at that church would have the same real uh, answer to their faith as the people that go to St. John Cantius. That in terms of like the Catholic church as a whole, as an international organization, um so I, I think it's a difference for me you know i you know i still you know believe in the eucharist i uh go to misa um the uh pandemic has kind of slowed that down um i think that's when i started to realize you know this the homilies were just making me upset <laughs> you know you know the priest starts so well and then they just say something really problematic and then you're like oh i don't want to be i shouldn't be angry at mass um, so we try to hop around and, and go to different uh, masses. Uh, there's actually two churches I've, I've really enjoyed, St. Malachi, Precious Blood, Father Matt Ironman's there, and then St. Hyacinth Basilica. Um, those have actually been really cool, really welcoming parishes. Um, but I think in practice, you know, if, uh, if we're talking about getting involved in something at a church, that's not something that I've shut the door on. Um, I think what I have shut the door on, though, if we're talking about reconciliation and you know how I interact with my faith today I don't give money to the church I don't see a reason to give money to it I, I, I've seen no church that I've gone to give me a reason to give them money yeah um, and that's not to that's not to get down the soapbox and say like the church is all about money and they just want you know give me, give me, give me. but it's just to say like if I want to give to, if I want to give money, my money which I don't make a lot of but if I, and the money I do want to give I'm going to give it to causes that I genuinely feel I'm going to get a return on investment on. So like, I'm going to want to donate to an organization that I feel uh, is going to, that I can believe is going to give me an annual report that says, this is how your dollars were used. Um, we were able to do this, this, that, and the other, and you can fudge numbers in that scenario too. Yeah. But, I'd rather get a better understanding and get a get an organization that I feel is a good steward of my money to dedicate that hard-earned cash to. Yeah, and I think um, right there's there's so many complex relationships when it comes to the church. Uh, and there's a lot of different feelings there. I think uh, personally for me, like, and I'm gonna go into like kind of like my history a little bit, a little bit more. Um, but I think there's a few things that kind of like ring similarly in your experience that kind of touched me. Uh, first off, I also went to St. John Birchman's, not for school, but for CCD. Uh, so I, I got that experience that you're talking about. You did? Okay. <laughs> All right. I, that's what that's what I hear from folks. It's an awful feeling. It is weird. Yeah. It was really weird. And a lot of times I just skip CCD. Like, my i remember my dad would just like drive down the street and like he'd be doing errands or like, getting groceries on saturday morning and he'd see me at starbucks and he's like what are you doing i'm like that's another thing too like a lot of those teachers that are probably taking time out of their weekends or their evenings to work with you all them too like they were also probably just you know not i mean articulate this they were getting paid 
for for most likely not getting paid. Uh, and I'm a firm believer if you're going to ask people to do work like that to be teachers, you probably pay them something. Yeah. Like helping restock a food pantry or, you know, delivering clothes to people who need it. Like doing stuff like that is not something that I feel would work that, you know, that's like a nice volunteer experience. It's finite, but you're asking somebody to come on a dedicated calendar day, weekend and week out to work with multiple individuals. I mean, teachers go, teachers and, and CPS go through years of training to get a degree. And you're going to ask people that, I mean, how do you know that they know how to talk about or articulate their, their religion, what they believe, what they believe as Catholics to young people, let alone keep track of an overpopulated classroom. And by overpopulated, I mean, one person that isn't trained, that's just said, you have a heart of gold, you're a heart of gold volunteer that loves catechism. Mm-hmm. We're gonna throw you in here. Seven kids could be too much for a person. Five kids could be too much for a person. Some classrooms I've been in have had 15 kids, maybe even close to 20. Oh, and my my class, well, you wanna know how many we had? How many? In eighth grade, when we were getting ready for confirmation, uh, I think we had around 26. Wild, man. Yeah. And most, I, I, I'm sure there's churches out there that pay their teachers, their catechism, catechism teachers to, 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 to teach, but I have yet to see one. I'm sure it exists, but I've yet to see one. Yeah. And even then, like, it's, I don't even know if it qualifies as being part-time. It's like those who do volunteer get like a stipend it's right. not necessarily the most sustainable right um and then you then you lose out on people that really could be great at the role but can't afford to keep the lights on at home so that time that they could be dedicating to you to catechism on a saturday you know, those two hours or three hours or whatever an hour even probably going to spend that time maybe looking for work or another side hustle to help you know get from one month to the next so you lose out on quality people when you're not willing to invest in a program monetarily. Yeah. And even then, like, I think there's so much to that, right? Because then there's even the aspect of like, are these people like able to then engage fully with everyone in the classroom? Do they have the resources, the capacity to do so? Uh, For me, in a lot of situations, I was just like, didn't necessarily there was like a few good catechism teachers who were like really dope um and would bring like donuts and i was just like yeah donuts they lured me in with the donuts and then they'd be like god i'm like okay wait maybe this they need to have a point um but i think those sometimes were like we would literally go on these wild tangent conversations and i think that's what did it for me because uh, the philosophical aspect, the the mental exercise um, that, and I really had that in fifth grade. That was like literally it. That was like the one class that I had. Everything else was just, I couldn't stand because it would just be people being like unenthusiastically reading from a book. And I don't know if I necessarily expect them to do more because like we just mentioned, they're probably not getting paid to do more. Right. Or if they even have the capacity to do so. Uh, facts. I mean, it, it, like I said, teachers go, there's teachers uh, in CPS schools, Catholic schools that go to year, through years of training um, and teachers that will get training in on particular subjects. I would be surprised if we put that much effort into the formation of our catechist teachers. I just, 
that that investment's not being made, which connects to my larger point of like, give all these churches that are open. I know we have an archdiocese of Chicago, there's Renew My Church. So that process is already starting. But for years, I mean, when I was working with our, for the archdiocese of Chicago, we had over 365 Catholic churches open, I believe. And we were seeing in like the next decade with all the priest retirements, there was only going to be enough priests for like 200 and something churches. So it's like, you have less priests, you have less money, you have less resources. Why do we have these many churches open? If we would have consolidated, imagine how much work we probably would be able to do. Um, good work you might be able to do and, and actually like live that faith instead of just talking about it on a Sunday. And again, that's a generalization. Not saying that there aren't churches doing good work out there, but imagine pooled resources as opposed to everybody doing the same thing at a fraction of the capacity. Yeah. So then in your, I guess, like with your experience working at the archdiocese um, and then also what I remember like what you've been able to do with the youth group uh, and campus ministry, what do you think are some of the, the signs of like a ministry that is like doing its job, right? Like doing, living the faith, living um, exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Like what would it be an ideal youth ministry? You're saying? Yeah. Cause you mentioned like, um, like all of these, like right so like this the these churches not necessarily having consolidation so it's kind of spread thin what would be the ideal situation of like a church that was like running effectively uh with consolidated um resources that can then reach out to the community more effectively how how would that look like sure well with anything you do you're going to need money so unfortunately my idea is you got you, you're going to need money to do it Ideally, with the consolidation, if you're pooling funds, especially in that scenario, uh, having a team of youth ministers to oversee that given uh, church. Let's say if you have a church in an area, you know, the, let's say the other three churches closed down around it, things have been consolidated, it's in that one church. You have a dedicated, you have a dedicated youth ministry budget. You pay a youth minister um i wouldn't pay a youth minister anything less than 50k starting which i feel is low um if you need to add on young adult ministry to there fine i whatever budget loop you know hoops you need to jump through but i would say 50k minimum for a youth ministry position and that's with really good benefits for time off that's with really good benefits for medical care paternity leave it's, uh, what else? Uh, professional development, uh, mileage reimbursement, um, a number of, I feel like I'm getting in the weeds here, but a number of budget line items need to be earmarked for a dedicated youth ministry program and a dedicated youth minister minimum. Um, if you can have a couple people be youth ministers, even better. Uh, that youth ministry would then, as a part of their mission, cultivate young leaders to take up the mantle once that youth minister is no longer able to continue in their role or moves on to something else. I think that is a major pitfall for a lot of youth ministries. They tend to get built around one person um, or they tend to get built around a lot of energy at first and it just kind of peters out once that generational leaders ends. 
So really putting the building blocks from day one and who are going to be the people we can invest in to move on to the next phase of leadership once they hit young adult ministry life, or maybe that's just a funnel system to young adult ministry. So you have a bridge from adult Catholicism to junior high Catholicism. You're, you're kind of creating that um, pipeline. Um, so you have a dedicated a group of young people and you can have bylaws. So there's some order there. Um, really big on like learning opportunities for young people. So it's not enough to just say, hey, you're the president of the youth ministry or you're the treasurer of the youth ministry. It's like, oh, you're the treasurer of the youth ministry. Here's how, here's how you can um, organize your budget. Oh, you're going to be the president of, of the youth ministry. Let me show you how to run a meeting. And actually use all those interactions as learning opportunities. So you're preparing young people not only to take on leadership in a ministry down the line, but you're giving them life skills that they can then apply to their life outside of the four walls of their church. If there is space in the parish, on the parish grounds, having a dedicated youth space, I think, is essential. Making sure that you have proper training in place for things like virtues training uh, so that people that are coming in and going to be working with young people go through some type of orientation process. It's not and uh, virtues training being a part of that. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's something about learning styles. Maybe there's certain young people that come to youth to, to the regular youth ministry uh, gatherings that needs a little bit of extra attention. Uh, you know, things like that are things. So you're not just throwing people in the deep end and helping how to swim. Yeah. Uh, I'd also invest in professional development for those young people, not the young young people that would be identified as young leaders, um, the present and in the future. I would put aside money in the budget to send them to things like Catholic conferences, like NCYC, um, like NCCYM. Um, these are great opportunities where young people can see how big the church is they can see what other uh techniques or methods uh have had success in other archdioceses or dioceses around the country uh, i'd also make sure that whoever the priest uh, is at that parish understands fully what their role is in youth ministry and that is to be present is to be supportive and that's to also uh be a guide yeah. um so I think a lot of priests just don't want to deal with youth ministry. So they just kind of, oh, that's just youth ministry. That's just something done over there. But if they don't invest the time and they're not building relationships with their next parishioners, their next generation of parishioners. Or maybe they don't care because they're not going to be there in six years or the next year. So they're not worried. They're worried about keeping the lights on and just kind of making it from one month to the next or one year to the next. And not really concerned about creating the next generation. So you get guys like that. So it would be very intentional on who the priest would be in that space. Um, and then if we have deacons that are there, having a deacon that's actually assigned to the youth ministry as well. Um, and again, I mean that not to create bureaucracy. I mean that to create a support system. And then if we can have a system where there's a board of young adults that are willing to offer as mentors, volunteers. Uh, so being very intentional with the progression of a young person's experience from the moment they step into youth group to the moment they leave it. Um, so continuing that engagement would be the most important thing. But like I said, a lot of this stuff takes time, takes energy, passion, money. And you got to really want to see something like that be successful and be patient 
that it's not going to be successful within the first few months, maybe not even the first year. Um, when I started as a youth minister, you know, I think we were getting around 10 young people coming. Um, and I think by like the end of our first year, second year, we had like 60 young people coming on a regular basis. So we're doing something right there. Um, same thing for our young adult ministry. Uh, and after I left, there was a leadership team in place as well. Uh, but as a lot of what we see in the church, as soon as you get a new priest that comes in, they're not down with the program or willing to be a part of it or willing to, you know, understand what their role could be in it. That leadership just kind of fizzled out because they didn't have somebody that was in their corner. They didn't have a guide, didn't have a support system. Um, and they just kind of, that leadership team eventually went their own separate ways a few years, yeah. a few years after I had left, um, I want to say under a decade, they left if I'm getting my, my, my years, right. Um, so yeah, but that, again, with that intentionality though, like in my scenario, I mean, you had a team, even after I was gone, uh, as a youth minister, I'm still going, I mean going on i think it was like maybe five five to eight years i'm i want to say after that and they, they just got a new priest so didn't work out so your youth minister where exactly san Aloysius. oh okay cool so then they got a new priest and as a result it, the youth ministry just kind of fizzled down or how did mm -hmm. what kind of happen yeah i mean it's my understanding is you know the there wasn't the financial investment. Uh, there wasn't support of the leadership. Um, it just, the people that were running it just didn't feel like they were able to do anything or that anybody cared what they were doing. Uh, it seemed to always be a struggle to do stuff with young people. Um, so that's, that's my understanding from what happened. Uh, now, that's not to say that there aren't other factors, you know, maybe the team got smaller, you know, maybe it just came down to a handful of folks that were just like, yeah. there's lots of us, this is getting more difficult with the new leadership. Maybe it's time to hang it up and, you know, just step away. Um, there could be any number of reasons why things dissolve. Um, but leadership at a church is probably the biggest reason, one of the biggest reasons. Um, so one thing that you did touch on, um, in that last part, in terms of like navigating youth ministry, um, and talking about like fostering each step of like a young person's development, um, looking back at your experience, mm -hmm. what do you think was fundamental when, you know, like entering this age where like getting into college, um, right you're no longer a kid you're not quite an adult you're in this weird gray area you were talking about kind of the development of like right youth ministry needs to follow the stages of like youth um who are like just maturing basically and making sure that they still involve them in the church and they still have roles for them in the church as they continue and grow um so my question to you was in the transition in young adulthood right when you when you're going through it and as a college student as graduating from high school what helped you in your journey of faith uh i left i left ministry for like a year or so when i went to college and i think that was good because it gave freedom it freed me up to focus on work and school um i think what made me want to come back was my priest nick desmond had called and 
said, hey, we're looking to give youth ministry another go um, with like a new leadership. Because I had left, when I had left, it was as a volunteer. Um, and I was already getting older and I was starting to feel like, okay, I got to kind of start moving on to the next stage of my life. There was no young adult ministry at St. Al's and you know, I was aging, I essentially aged out of the youth ministry. Um, so I was like, all right, well, I'll just focus on college. But my priest called me up, said they were looking at, you know, shaking up leadership, asked me if I'd want to be a youth minister for St. Aloysius. And I said, yeah. And I think for me, that was really helpful because again, I got to get paid to do something I really liked. Um, I was on the team to build a new community center. So we actually built a really modern gym uh, with like six basketball hoops on it. Um, you know, one full, full court uh, basketball court. Uh, you could do two volleyball setups there, like full industrial kitchen and a youth drop-in center in addition to classrooms and computer labs, a rooftop garden. Like I was on that, I was proud to be on that team to really see that come to fruition. Again, it's a, again like I said earlier, you know, I started to kind of see fruits of my labor. I wasn't just working, you know, and spinning on a wheel. It's like, all right, now we're finally getting the resources that we need to really kick our youth ministry into high gear. And I think selfishly, I got to make the youth ministry what I wanted to. You know, I, I of course, was within the bounds of Catholic teaching, but I, I knew what I didn't like in CCD. I knew what I didn't like when I was teaching catechism uh, to young people. I knew what I didn't like when I was in theology class in high school or junior high. Uh, I knew what I didn't like. I knew what I didn't want to see. So I took that mentality into youth ministry. You know, I, I ended up uh, with with our group of leaders. We ended up getting a, a grant called Voices for Peace in the Holy Land. And I think you could probably find it on YouTube. I did like a 10 minute documentary. Yeah, uh, it's not the best. I don't know. I think it holds up kind of. It's, it's dated. But the message, I think, is very sound. Um, we got this grant to essentially take young people on a virtual pilgrimage through the Holy Land. So we created uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. We created uh, the Wailing Wall. We created the Dome of the Rock. Uh, and we talked about things like Abrahamic religions, how we, we you think about the context of 9-11 and all this anti-Muslim um sentiment that was in our country at the time being able to sit with young people and talk to them about the differences of between islam judaism and catholicism and even tracing back to our origins that we all have a similar patriarch we all have the same patriarch in abraham uh, who had isaac and ishmael so things like that really interested me i love that that part uh, of our faith i love that part of you know history and the bible and really delving deep into that with other people selfishly i was getting to do what i wanted to do but again it was within the parameters of catholic teaching like these are things that people should know they should know that jesus was jewish they should know that we can connect our lineages to abraham so just as much as there are differences there are a lot of things that make us similar uh so leaning into things like interfaith dialogue was something i never really got so i got to do that as a youth minister and i think that's what helped me grow as uh as a theological as a theology uh as i should say as a historian of theology as a practicer of uh ministry like those are things that i just got to do to invest in my own development while also investing in the development of young people because again my mentality is young people aren't stupid they can handle these conversations if this is something that i wanted as a young person there's a chance that they wanted it too and if they didn't 
I was always intentional in doing surveys. Is this something you liked? Do you want to do something else? What are you all craving? So I really let people choose what they wanted to go, try to understand that path, how that could benefit the overall mission of the ministry. Uh, and I think that just getting my brain to work in that, those types of ways, it, like it, it forced me to be creative, um, even though I was selfish in certain moments where I was like, oh, this is good for my own professional development. Um, I was also giving our young people way more credit than I think a lot of people had up to that point um, and that a lot of youth ministries do uh, and still don't to this day. Um, so I think that's how I was able to, to grow a bit more. Um, yeah, no, I think you touch on all the bases. Um, and I, I really appreciate that answer because I think, um, yeah, I think you, you spoke to something that like, I think you mentioned it earlier with the ageism in the church, um, and the focus being not necessarily on youth experiences, um, and the, just the lack of investment. I think that's something that we see uh, globally um, with the Catholic Church right now, um, which is really interesting, especially considering like, and again, this is going to be a little bit of a side tangent, but I think it is interesting to look at, especially with like this lack of investment in youth and this lack of investment in like, I would say the more progressive side of, yeah, if theology, and I was going to mention liberation theology in South America and how influential that was. Um, to youth protests and stuff like that. And so it's just, it's really interesting because it, they both- Shout out Oscar Romero. Yeah, we have, um, at UCYM, we have a big uh, poster of him. Um, nice. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. I was a Romero scholar too when I was getting my master's uh, in divinity. Uh, I love that guy. Anyway, yeah. sorry. And the movie was good too. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. There's a movie? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a Puerto Rican guy that plays him too, I think, actually. Hey, represent. Uh, shout out my Boricuas. Uh, uh, what was it called? Um, shoot, it might have just been called Oscar. Hang on. Let me see. Oscar Romero movie. If that movie did oh, not no. Oscar. Uh, it? Oh, it's called Romero. Oh, okay. Romero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Raul Julia plays him. Nice. He also played Gomez in the 90s Adams, Adams Family movie. Oh, okay. Look at that. But anyway, uh, Raul is Puerto Rican. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he plays Oscar Romero. So nice. uh, it came out in 89. So I highly recommend that film. For sure. I'll, uh, anyway. It's just called Romero? Yeah, Romero. All right, I'll put it on my list. All right. Well, um, yeah, I think with that, um, there's two more questions I have left for you. I did like that little side tangent. But when it comes to youth um and right and then we're talking about this like lack of investment um this is kind of your opportunity to to invest a little bit in catholic youth what advice do you have for young adults looking for direction in their faith uh who might be questioning if god is real if if any of this is worth it considering the history of the catholic church what would you say mm. Uh, I would say everybody comes into their faith in their own way. And just because other people came into their faith differently than you than, than, and are in a different space in relationship with their faith than you are, doesn't mean it's a negative reflection on you. What I would encourage and what helped me was learning about other faith traditions, understanding the similarities, understanding the differences, 
uh, and asking as many possible questions as I could from people who I felt were thought leaders in the Catholic space. Um, and if you're learning about other religions and you want to learn more about them, you know, finding thought leaders in those spaces, I think I, I cannot just, I cannot encourage that enough. Like, so I think asking questions, doing your research, if you identify as Catholic and you want to practice your faith and you feel like you're just not feeling the spirit at your church, even if you've been going there, your whole, maybe it's your family's church, maybe you've been going there for a long time, you feel some, some type of root, roots there, but there's just a disconnect. Uh, shopping around for different churches is not an awful thing to do. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite times as being a Catholic was going to different, was pushing myself every Sunday to go to a different Catholic church. You got to see different communities. You got to see different styles. You got to see how different priests approach the mass. Um, and you kind of get to figure out what you really want, the type of energy you want when you're coming into contact or coming into your own faith. Um, maybe that's not Catholicism. If it is, God bless you. If it's not, God bless you. Um, but I think, again, everybody just comes into their into relationship with their faith in their own way. Uh, and I think that's something that should be supported and not poo-pooed. Um, but again, what helped me? Again, was just asking questions, doing research, um, and pushing myself to see what else was out there. I think that's going to be very beneficial because uh, I think that was the question... I've struggled with and I always like to ask people. Um, and so I think that in that journey, uh, not only did your response was, did it touch me, but also I think that it's it's true in my own experience because I feel like the autonomy I had with my faith really started to form, not even in high school, because I did go to a Catholic school, I went to like DePaul Prep. But when I started going to Loyola and I took my theology classes, uh, and it was just two simple theology classes, but for the first time ever, I feel like I was talking to like experts who had answers. And that experience for me was transformative because I was just like, whoa, there's there's more to this. There's there's history, there's um there's philosophy, there's science. It's the fact that theology is so inclusive of our fundamental human condition in so many different ways. Um, so yeah, I think in college that door got a little opened and I think that, um, your advice rings true in my own experiences, um, just the aspect of exploring and, um, just diving in and seeing what you find. There are some good books out there too. Like I know I haven't picked it up in a while, but one book that I thought was really helpful for me, especially as a young adult was, uh, the UCAT, um, it's a yellow book, uh, it's spelled Y-O-U-C-A-T. I believe that's just short for youth catechism, but they have a whole series. Uh, but the yellow book is basically uh, uh, like an encyclopedia for Catholics. Um, so if you wanted to talk about, if you want to look up a particular topic, uh, let's say dogma or transubstantiation, uh, you'd be able to look that up in the um, UCAT. And it's it's actually very user-friendly. Nice. All right, so wrapping up on a nice, you know, lighter note. Um, how can you explain the Holy Trinity in three sentences without using the word holy? Wow, well, man, it's tough. Uh, three <laughs> sentences? At least I think it's three sen uh, sentences. Yeah, yeah three um, sentences. And, uh, it should just be What's, around a tweet yeah uh 
let's say the, the like formal way would be like the truth, the truth and the unity uh, of God. Uh, if I would like use it that way. Okay. Um, I think more like layman's terms. I mean, this is way more than three sentences. <laughs> uh, it would just be, you know, three persons, one being, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, three individual, uh, three individ uh, three persons, yet distinct, um, but all as one. Not three sentences, but <laughs> that's the best way I can put it. And that's probably from something you could find in Wikipedia. I don't know. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's how I, I mean, if I was talking to somebody on the street, I would say it's the core fabric, it's the core fabric belief of our of our Catholic faith. Um, that there are three three beings in one, and that one being being God. That would be the that would be the unifying, the unifying pieces that bring us to the truth, which would be being the good news, being what we need to do in God's, what we need to do uh, based off the example that was left for Jesus Christ, that was left for us by Jesus Christ and how we're supposed to live that in our world today. Um, but that is kind of the heart of everything. Um, it's how we get the Eucharist, it's how we get the Lord's Prayer, it's how we get the Gospels, it's how we get everything. Um, so... Again, not three sentences, but. But no, thank you for answering that. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you for being on the podcast. Um, if there's any way to reach out, how do you want people like this is your official plug time. So go sure. crazy. I mean, I'm here officially just representing myself. Um, but normally when I'm on podcasts, I'm representing the Paseo podcast. That's P-A-S-E-O. Um, you can find that anywhere podcasts are streamed. It's a podcast that I host. It comes out bi-weekly uh, and it all focuses on Puerto Rican issues. So we highlight stories by from and about the Puerto Rican community. Um, long form interviews may range from 20 minutes and maybe a little bit of over an hour, uh, but it's always quality. It's always a different body in the guest chair. And like I said, you want to find us at Paseo Podcast, anywhere that you stream your podcast, at Paseo Podcast on all social media. Uh, I mean, we have TikTok, but I don't post anything on there. But Instagram, Twitter, yeah. Facebook, it's out there. And if you want to check out our website, just go to paseomedia.org. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know. I heard uh, the videos are really good. I don't know. I, videos I, are really good. We have a, we have a really amazing, great uh, editor. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, there's amazing editors behind the scenes. Mm. It's almost like I'm talking to this amazing actor right now. Right? Uh, <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, this has been Joshua Smiza de Leon. Um, yeah. Have a good one. God bless you. All right. God bless. See you, Joel. Thanks for having me on. For sure. See you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Close on Sunday podcast. Feel free to look at our social media in the description box below. Other than that, if you want to listen to more episodes, we're available anywhere where podcasts are found.